I will read the scriptures this morning from John chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them and follow along with me. Uh, The scripture will also be up here on the screen as well. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The word of the Lord. I look out over this congregation today and I see that there are many people who are uh, my age and older. Um, A lot younger, of course, but there are many people who um, lived and have lived life during the same period of time that I have. Um, And so to you, I I want to uh, speak very, very specifically for just a moment. If you had the opportunity to be a teenager or a young adult during the late 60s and early 70s, you probably remember that as being a very unique and unusual period of time. Now, there is a sense in which every era of time has its own unique characteristics, but there really was something different about the late 60s and early 70s. These were the days of riot and rebellion, of marches and sit-ins for any reason possible, sometime for no reason at all. These were the days of the Vietnam War. Those of us who have dual citizenship or lived in the States actually registered for the draft. I still have my draft card. Uh, And uh, every Friday afternoon, uh, when I was in high school, grade 12, we would check the newspaper to see whose number had come up and who had to report for duty. And we're glad every Friday afternoon when we didn't find our number in the newspaper. These were the days of Watergate and the events which led to the impeachment of the president. United States. But amongst all of the events and circumstances and people that made the late 60s, early 70s unique, there was a group of people who seemed to epitomize the moment. They were known to the world as hippies. There's kind of a comeback of them a little bit these days. You see a little bit of a resurgence. But this was the counter generation. These were people who seemed to be against anything and everything. They looked different, they walked different, they talked different. They were different. And society didn't know what to do with them. Try as 
no matter, regardless of the effort, nothing worked to kind of incorporate the, the, the hippies into the mainstream of societal life. Even in the church, we didn't know what to do with them. Now, in the church, we didn't call them hippies, we called them what? Jesus people. Remember that? We called them Jesus people. But they still didn't fit in. Regardless of the effort. Until one day, someone came up with a great idea. They said, let's hold youth rallies. And let's invite the young people of the area to come together and invite one of the Jesus people to speak. You have to wonder what they were smoking to come up with that idea. I mean, that's just crazy. But it happened. And all over the country, these youth rallies popped up. And the Jesus people finally had a legitimate platform from which to proclaim their revolutionary message. I remember attending one such youth rally. We were living here in Edmonton. My dad was the first pastor of Greenfield Baptist, and I was a teenager at the time. And um, along with some friends of mine, we piled in a car and we made the trip to Leduc, gathered at one of the churches there, and waited with great expectation for this Jesus people representative to come and speak. And when he arrived, it was evident that he was there. I mean, this guy really was different. He really did look different. And he really did talk different. And when he spoke, it was nothing like we had heard from our platforms and pulpits of our local churches. I was convinced that if my dad had showed up, he would have shut us down. I don't remember all of the details of what he preached about. That's typical with preachers. Um, most of the time we preach and a week later nobody remembers it. Well, I don't remember all the details of what this guy said. But I do remember that even as a teenager, something bothered me that night. There was, there was something amiss in that message. It was only later as I reflected on this that it occurred to me that the problem with that message is that not only was it counter-cultural, it was counter-biblical. You see, throughout the night, he droned on and on and on, telling us about his experimentation with drugs and sex and alcohol. But almost everything he talked about was in the past. There was virtually nothing about the present and nothing about the future. And that in itself is counter-biblical. You see, the... The, the, the theme, or at least the focus that runs throughout the pages of Scripture, Genesis to Revelation, is not the past. It is the future. So let me plant one phrase in your mind, and I'll come back to it repeatedly. God is more concerned with your future than He is with your past. God is more concerned with where you're going than with where you have been with what you are going to become than with anything and everything you have become or experienced in the past. God's more concerned about your future than he is about your past. Now as you allow that thought to sink into your mind, I want to take you to two passages of scripture. They're very familiar passages and, and just talk through them. And if you'll forgive me, I'm going to use a little bit of sanctified imagination and fill in some gaps and tell more of a story around these two events. The first one is this John chapter 8 passage that has been read. As you reflect on that passage with me, 
uh, I, would, I would phrase the story this way. Uh, this was a very normal kind of experience in the life of Jesus. He was in Jerusalem, and we know that because it refers to the temple and the Mount of Olives. He was in Jerusalem, and, and he was speaking, and he collected quite a crowd of people. I want you to, to think with me about who's in that crowd. Well, first of all, we have the disciples, and although the text does not say that, we know that, that, that even early in Jesus' ministry, his disciples were with him. Wherever he went, they were with him. They ate with him, they slept out in the open with him, they listened to him, they traveled with him, they served with him. Virtually everywhere he went, they were there. And so by assumption, I would say the disciples were there. I want you to look at the crowd of people. Even early in Jesus' ministry, he has collected quite a reputation. So wherever he goes, people come. They followed him into the towns and the cities. They followed him out, out to the seashore. They followed him to, to the, the mountainsides where he spoke. At times, there were so many that he couldn't even go into town. He had to stay out of town. Wherever he went, the people came around. They came from the towns and the villages. They came from Jerusalem itself. They, they came to, to hear the message of this revolutionary. They, they came to bring their, their sick and their infirm that Jesus would touch them and, and they would be healed. Look at the people. They're just like you and me. Just a crowd from town. On the edge of the crowd, really there but not there, are the religious leaders. They are not active participants in the moment. They are more spectators from a distance. As Jesus is speaking, I want to suggest that there is a disturbance that grows at the edge of the crowd. At first, nobody pays attention to it. But as it moves closer to the center, the attention of the people moves from Jesus to this, this disturbance. This is the religious leaders who are pushing their way into the, into the midst of the crowd, forcing their way at, into the very center. And when they arrive at the center, they thrust a woman into the midst, and as she stands face to face with Jesus, they tell the story of her life. This is a very well-known woman. She's well-known in the community not because of her goodness or her kindness or her generosity or her benevolence. She's well-known in the community because of her sin. This is an evil woman. This is an adulterous woman. And as she stands face to face with Jesus, they tell the story of her life. And they tell with such conviction, even first-hand knowledge, she was caught in adultery. I need to pause for a moment and ask the question, how is it that these religious leaders, these fine, upstanding uh, men from the community, how is it that they have such first-hand knowledge of the, the, the sin of this woman? Could it be that earlier in the day, that knowing that Jesus was going to be in the temple, that they gathered together and, and, and began to, to think about their community and the needs of the people, and they thought about this woman and thought maybe they should bring her to Jesus, that Jesus could help? Could it be that they decided to bring her to, so, that, so that somehow Jesus would have an influence on her life? No, I want to suggest that that morning they were the peeping toms looking in the windows. They were the ones standing in the shadows and they waited until this woman was in the midst of her sin and then they burst into the room and drug her off to meet Jesus with only a sheet to cover her nakedness and shame. And now as she stands before Jesus 
having been condemned, she now waits for the other shoe to drop. Everybody waits. The disciples wait to hear what their young revolutionary rabbi is going to say. The people wait. They already know that whenever Jesus and, and, the, and the religious leaders are in proximity with one another, there's conflict. The religious leaders wait. Not that they would learn from Jesus. They have come to trap him, to find some, something they can use to accuse him at a later date. They're hoping that he'll say something wrong, that he'll do something wrong. The woman waits for condemnation. Jesus does something that's unexpected. He stoops down and begins to doodle in the dirt. People continue to accuse. And then Jesus stands up and he says something about sin and stones. He stoops down once again and scratches in the sand. This time there's another kind of sound. It's the sound of shuffling feet as those same religious leaders who had so arrogantly and boisterously pushed themselves into the midst of the crowd, now they drift away one at a time with only their flowing grounds to cover their sin and shame. Jesus stands up and he speaks to the woman this time. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, how could you do this? How could you live a life like this? How could you, how could you go so low? to live in this way. No, he speaks to her in an attitude of compassion and love. And in doing so, he turns the focus of her attention away from her past towards her future. Why is it that Jesus does this? Why is it that he does nothing that you and I would have done or says nothing that we would have said? It's because Jesus understands the attitude of our Father and that is that God is more concerned with our future than he is with our past. He's more concerned with where we are going than with where we've been. He's more concerned with what we are going to become than with all we have become from the past. As he turns our, our heart and our attitude towards the future and a changed life, Well, let me take you to another passage of Scripture. This one is in the last chapter, last two chapters, or focus last chapter of the Gospel of John. Again, this is a very well-known passage, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want, to, I want to retell the story. In the events preceding this moment in time, Jesus has been arrested, tried, convicted, beaten, crucified, murdered, and buried in a borrowed tomb. In the midst of those events, the disciples scatter. They're afraid of what might happen if they get caught, or if they are, are numbered along with Jesus. And so they hide. They eventually find themselves together once again in a secluded private room. And they wait. Fear fills the room as they, as they wonder what might happen if they are discovered. Peter becomes impatient. He says, I'm going fishing. And the rest of his disciple friends agree to go along. 
The text tells us that they spent the night fishing on the Sea of Galilee and they caught nothing. Now we need to stop here for a moment and consider the implication of that. They caught nothing. If this was telling the story of my life, that would not be unusual. You see, over the days of my life, I have, I have fished quite a bit. More so when we lived in, in Manitoba. Lots of lakes and lots of fishing and almost every, every other person in Manitoba fishes. I've done a lot of fishing. But most of the time I do little more than drown worms or get my tackle wet. You see, there is a big difference between someone who fishes and a fisherman. Fishermen catch fish. Guys who fish come home with stories. My wife is agreeing right now. Gee, you know, I've come home with some great stories, you know. Far more, t- more so than bringing home fish. I-, I remember one time I was fishing on a lake in Manitoba, and, and uh, out on the lake I was anchored, and I was fishing away, and I was convinced I was going to catch something, and I fished and fished and fished and didn't catch anything. Just a little ways over, and probably not further than the corner of this building, there was a guy by the name of, uh, his last name was Miller. He was pulling fish in like crazy. I'm going, what's wrong with me? The difference is he's a fisherman. These disciples were fishermen. This was their vocation, their career. This is how they provided for their family. These guys knew the Sea of Galilee like one would know the back of your hand. They knew how to fish, and yet it says that they fished all night and caught nothing. And so as the gray light of dawn begins to dance across the eastern sky, they turn the boat towards shore and begin to row in. As they get close, they notice someone standing on the shore. They get closer, and this person from the shore speaks to them across the water. Hi, guys, how are you doing? All right. Did you catch anything? No. And then he says something that I think is one of the most ridiculous statements found in Scripture. Throw your nets on the other side. Don't you think that in the course of the night they would have done that already? I mean, that's what fishermen do. If you don't catch fish at one spot, you go to another spot. If you don't catch fish using one type of tackle, use a different tackle. If you don't catch fish with your nets on one side of the boat, you throw them on the other side. Don't you think they'd already tried that? Their reaction to me is priceless. If it had been me, I probably would have said, the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Just, just a city slicker. He's not a fisherman. But strangely enough, they threw their nets on the other side. And they caught fish. Not just a few fish. This is net-breaking fish. This is huge. Peter speaks up once again. He says, it's the Lord. He grabs his clothing, he jumps in the water, he swims ashore, and he arrives there just before his friends with the boat. He helps them beach the boat, drag the fish fish in. But it's this next scene that... My imagination plays some games with this one. You see, I see them sitting around a fire that Jesus has built, enjoying a meal that Jesus has prepared. But I see this as being a very quiet gathering. Which this too is unusual. You see, fishermen are not quiet people. Especially after they've caught a lot of fish. I would have expected them to be doing the dance of joy. 
I would have expected them to be doing the high five and slapping each other on the back and congratulating each other on what wonderful fishermen they are. But I see this as being very solemn as they're unwilling to look at each other and unable to look at Jesus. Jesus breaks the silence and he singles out Peter. He says, Peter, let's go for a walk. I see Jesus and Peter on the beach. Jesus is marching out across the sand and Peter is shuffling along behind him. I got to tell you, if I was Peter, that's the last place I would want to be is alone with Jesus. I'm sure in that moment, Peter was remembering everything that had transpired in the hours and the days preceding this. How it was that he had stood before Jesus and, and, and literally rebuked Jesus saying, I will never fall away. I will be with you. I will stand with you. You can trust me. You can depend on me. I'll be with you. And yet in the moments, the hours that followed, Peter did nothing he said he would do. He did everything he said he wouldn't do. In my mind, I see Jesus turning and looking at Peter and talking, but I want you to see what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, Peter, how could you let me down? I trusted you, Peter. How could you let me down? No, he says something to Peter about love and sheep. Why does he do this? Why is it that he says nothing that we would have said, that he does nothing that we would have done? Because Jesus understands the attitude of our Father, and that is that God is more concerned with our future than he is with our past. He's more concerned with where we are going than with where we have been. More concerned with what we are going to become than with what we have been in the past. Jesus is turning Peter's heart and attitude towards the future and away from his past. I think my time is gone. Let me, let me wrap this up with, with a personal story. It happened in my life. Uh, again, it was a time when I was a teenager. We were living here in Edmonton. Um, I have to admit that that was a period of time when um, I, it was not a great time in my life. I had allowed a group of uh, supposed friends to have an inappropriate influence over the way I conducted myself. And on one occasion, as I responded to their dares and taunts, I walked into a little grocery store, Petrolia Shopping Center, 40th Avenue and 114th Street. I walked in and I looked around, nobody was watching, I picked something up off the shelf, shoved it under my shirt and walked out. It didn't matter what it was. I had no more than gotten a, but a few feet down the sidewalk when I heard someone call my name. And I froze in mid-stride. I turned around and looked into the eyes of Mrs. Larson. Mrs. Larson was an employee of that store. But more importantly, she was a member of the church my dad pastored. We stood there on the sidewalk. We talked about what I had done. She said, I'm not going to turn you in. I'm not going to call the cops. But I want to talk to your dad. I got to tell you, I would rather she'd called the cops. I would rather had spent the night in jail than to face my dad with what I had done. 
So in the days that followed, I did everything possible to avoid my dad. Everywhere he was, I wasn't. Um, a couple of days later, I was working in a little store in Petroli Shopping Center, literally right beside that drugstore. Those of you who have a memory like mine remember the day that there was a dirt shoe repair in that, store, in that mall. Remember that? Nobody? I worked there after school. I was at the back sharpening skates. I heard a voice call my name and I knew who it was. I turned around and I looked into the eyes of my dad. He did this thing with his head, meaning, come with me. So I walked out of the store. We walked into that little mall. He turned around and he said, um, Do you have something you need to tell me? I don't know what I said. Something about being an idiot. He didn't disagree. Um, I might have even used the lines popularized by Flip Wilson, The Devil Made Me Do It. He wasn't convinced. He said, um, we'll talk about this when you take your supper break. I knew I didn't want to talk with him. I knew what talk meant. So, at that break, I walked those four blocks home, walked in the back door. My dad was at the bottom of the steps, and he did this thing with his head again. I went down the stairs, and we dealt with my sin in a very physical kind of way. Back in the days when parents did that. We then got in the car. It was one of those cars that had a bench seat. Remember them? We went to um, Mrs. Larson's house, and there in her living room, once again, we dealt with my sin. Then as we drove away, Dad driving, Mom in the middle, I'm by the door, we came to the stop sign, 114th Street, 40th Avenue. From where we're sitting, I can look across and I can see the drugstore. I can see the spot on the sidewalk where I talk with Mrs. Larson. And my dad reached over and he patted me on the leg and he said, Son, it's over. I knew what he was saying, I just didn't believe him. I was convinced that from that point on, every time I did something wrong, that he would remind me that I was a thief. Every time I, I messed up, that he would remind me that I was a shoplifter. But to this day, my dad has not brought it up. He's never said another word about it. Why? Because my earthly father understands the attitude of my heavenly father. And that is that God is more concerned with what's ahead of us than with what's behind us. God is more concerned with our future than he is with our past. It may be here today, there may be some who can identify with that woman. You feel that your life is so deeply immersed in sin that there is no hope and there is no way out. The truth of scripture is that by grace and faith in Jesus Christ there is forgiveness of sin and there is a change for tomorrow. There may be some who can identify with Peter and say, I have turned my back time and time again. I have betrayed. I have failed. I have not done what I said I would do. 
The message for you today is there's love in sheep. Through confession, through forgiveness, through grace and mercy, there's a change. Tomorrow is different. Folks, the best is ahead of us, not behind us. God has never been in the business of keeping his people as they are or moving them back to where they were. He's always been moving his people ahead, moving them forward. And as we enter a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, submitting our lives to him through confession and forgiveness, through the cleansing that he offers, he gives us tomorrow different than today. So never forget, folks, God is more concerned with your future than he is with your past.